Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, don't be alarmed, but the Chinese government just got rid of one of the last of its political opponents in the Solomon Islands, which will almost certainly lead to them building a naval base in the archipelago and doing what the Japanese were prevented from doing during World War II, militarily separating resource-rich Australia from its major ally, the United States, across the Pacific. But don't wait for the bullets to start flying as evidence of a war with China. I'll explain in a minute how this war began years ago and why the development in the Solomons is catastrophic for Australia. Also, will Energy Minister Chris Bowen accept responsibility when his grand dream of a rewired national energy grid crashes and burns, as the operator says it will? And will the World Pride event in Sydney Alienate the locals before it's even begun. That's tonight on The Fred Paul Show. Well, it wasn't long ago that the moral link between fossil fuels and human flourishing was widely understood. Fossil fuels allow us to make machines that free us from a life of drudgery and hard labour, build structures that protect us from the planet's extremes, and power the aircraft that take us on holiday during the abundant free time that we, more than almost anyone else in hi human history, find ourselves with. Most people once recognised this for the incredible good fortune that it was. And so did politicians. Like us, they too were driven by the objective of providing cheap, abundant and reliable energy, because that's what made us who we are. Then a notion took hold that human well-being was subordinate to the well-being of the planet. Suddenly, a conflict of interest arose. How can you enjoy a free and prosperous life, you heathen? You're destroying Mother Earth! In fact, despite it being sacrilege to say so to some people, this conflict of interest doesn't even exist. Any objective assessment of the past 70 years shows a direct correlation between the amount of fossil fuels we burn and the prosperity of everyone on the planet and the health of the planet itself. Once fossil fuels enable people to reach a certain level of income, they stop behaving in destructive ways just to stay alive. 
and buy into systems that offer a more long-term prospect. You know, like clean water supplies, sewerage and gas heating. These are the things that everyone alive today who was born in Australia has always taken for granted. But those days might soon be over, thanks to politicians like Chris Bowen. This week, the Australian energy market operator warned, quote, there remains an urgent need for additional commitments to occur, including in dispatchable projects such as long duration storage, to satisfy reliability requirements over the next 10 years. Urgent requirements. In other words, get ready for blackouts. Is Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen worried? If he is, he didn't reveal it during an interview with ABC Radio National's Patricia Carvelis on Tuesday. Carvelis repeatedly asked him if the shortfalls in supply were going to happen during his watch. Bowen replied with the usual drivel about progress towards emission reduction targets being pleasing, but there was still a lot more work to do, yada, yada, yada. Bowen's goal is to replace our existing energy infrastructure with a new network of wires connecting the entire eastern states of Australia to massive new fields of solar panels and windmills. He can sell this to the electorate because our culture is these days predisposed to replacing things like our mobile phones, our cars and our washing machines. He's dubbed the project Rewiring the Nation, like it's some sort of home renovation that will deliver the nation comfortably into the 21st century. Instead, it will force us back to the early 20th century by making energy more expensive. Those solar panels, windmills and wires aren't cheap, you know, and they frequently need replacing. By then, only the most privileged like Bowen himself, will be able to afford abundant electricity. The rest of us will freeze in the dark. And nobody, least of all Bowen, will accept the blame for the debacle. Well, let's bring in Australian Institute for Progress Executive Director, Graham Young, whose comprehensive research into this topic has led to the conclusion that renewables will be eye-wateringly expensive, Blackouts will be inevitable, and here's the clincher, nobody in this government will take blame for the perfectly predictable catastrophe they are imposing on us. Graham, welcome to the show. Pleasure, Fred. Firstly, let's talk about the capacity you need to build into an energy system that relies on renewables. If the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining in, say, New South Wales, then another state will need to step up and fill the gap. So that means you need to design each generator to supply more than is needed in its local area. Is that right? Um, well, more or less, Brett, uh, it's basically that um, you need more generators. It's not a larger generator, it's more turbines, it's more um, solar panels, larger areas of space. Uh, if you wanted to do a renewable-only system with no storage, you would have to have multiple duplications all over the country, and then you'd have to have wires connecting them, for which you'd have to pay full freight, 
um, but which would most of the time be barely used. Yeah, so let's, well, let's get back to the, the wires. The the, the, so we'll, we'll get to the wires in a second, but it's the generation I want to focus on for just, just for now. So if, if we want to build a system that relies mostly on renewables, then that system needs to allow for the contingency when renewables are not available in one area. Therefore, the rest of the system needs to be able to provide for that area, for, where, for example, if the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. So therefore, correct me if I'm wrong, therefore, the entire system's capacity needs to be considerably higher than what it is, what it is meant to supply at any one time. Is that correct? That's right. So if you're talking about solar, it only works about 25% of the time if you're lucky. So that means that to get 100% of the rating on the solar, so say you've got a one gigawatt uh, power station solar, you actually need four gigawatts of installed capacity to get that one gigawatt out. Um, so you can either provide the extra via storage um, and there's nothing apart from pumped hydro that works at grid scale at the moment, all this talk about batteries is a furphy, or you need to have an alternative source of that amount somewhere else. And if you're on wind and solar, it's got to be a wind uh, turbine at night because it's reliably sure that you won't have any solar power after um, five o'clock at night, basically. Yeah, and also uh, you've pointed out before the weather conditions across the east coast of Australia or the eastern part of Australia is often quite similar. So if there's no wind in or very little sun in one part, then it's probably the same, you know, say for example, Victoria or South Australia, it's probably not very sunny or windy in New South Wales as well. So it could be the whole system that's performing under its, well under its capacity, right? That's right. The, um, so the advocates for more renewables without adequate storage, um, contend that when the wind isn't blowing somewhere, it'll be blowing somewhere else. Uh, in Australia, we've got basically two networks. You've got the Eastern Seaboard Network, and then you've got West Australia. Uh, so the Eastern Seaboard goes to South Australia. There is often a lot of wind down there, but when you do get these wind droughts, uh, it's because of high pressure systems that move across the continent, and they do tend to affect South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales all at the same time, and possibly even Queensland. So your chances of actually managing to pipe uh, wind power from one part of the grid to the other when the solar's out uh, are lower than uh, you might think. Yes, good point. So let's talk about the way the parts of this proposed system that, that uh, Chris Bowen is very busily uh, trying to impose on us, how it's all connected. So it needs a, and he calls it rewiring the nation. This is the new network of wires and towers connecting the new generators, which are all solar and, 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 uh, and wind. Now, these are very, high, very expensive, high-capacity interconnectors. Now, who pays for these interconnectors when they're running at, say, quite often they'll be running at, I don't know, 20% of their capacity because, you know, they will be, they're, they're designed for the worst case scenario, uh, which would be very rare. So most of the time they'll be running at say 20% capacity. Who's going to be paying for those wires and towers at that time? We, we all will, Fred. You know, they, 
they say that wind and solar are the cheapest form of power, but they can only say that by neglecting the network cost. Uh, and everyone on the network pays for it. Uh, it's not uh, paid for on the basis of how much capacity is used. Uh, there's a regulator that sets the price. Uh, they give you a certain return on your capital and your debt. Um, so they say, well, it costs you, say, for argument's sake, $6 billion to, buy, uh, to build it. OK, we'll give you a return of, say, 6% on that. And then they allow for operating costs on top of that. So the operator gets paid as though it was at full capacity. Uh, and it's a cost plus system. Uh, so there is actually a, a benefit to operators in just keeping on building, unlike in a normal uh, market situation where you only build up to where you can make a profit. They will make a profit because we will all be forced to pay. Yeah, conveniently, that's left out of the perception we are given by the government about how cheap this whole thing is going to be, isn't it? Yeah, well, I talk about an energy ecosystem because I figure the greenies might be able to get their heads around that. <laughs> so what they do is they, they pick particular things out in isolation and they point to those, but they don't look at how it all interacts. Uh, there is a body that's tasked with doing that, um, that's AEMO, the Australian Energy Markets Operator, and it produces an ISP every couple of years, uh, which is their integrated system plan. Um, they have some concerns uh, that there are going to be shortfalls, and these are public servants whose job it is to keep governments happy. So people that I've done research with tell me that a lot of their assumptions are Overly optimistic would be an overly optimistic way of, uh, of looking at them, well, uh, that there's gaps in there which are starting to show. For example, they assume that Snowy 2.0 will come on stream at a particular time. The latest news is that Snowy 2.0 uh, has a... Well, it's already... It was supposed to be on stream by 2024. That's not going to happen. Now we find out the other day that one of the borers that is supposed to bore a hole... Uh, from a lower dam to a higher dam, has been stuck for quite some time, 100 metres, where it went in. So there's yet more delay there. Uh, so they've assumed that it will come on at a particular time. Um, it won't now. Um, so there's a hole that the plan didn't allow for. Well, and, and that's, that, that's sort of emblematic of the culture within this industry too, isn't it, Graham? Because there's a, um, there's a reluctance of anyone within the industry to upset this relentless uh, march towards renewables. Is that correct? Yeah, well, most of the money at the moment is in the renewable sector. We're closing down coal-fired power stations. We are building some more gas ones. But if you want to get employed and you're a consultant or you work in the industry in, in some way or other, you basically have to pay lip service to the... Um, uh, corporate design, whether you think that it's going to work or not. So to get sense in this area, you actually have to talk to people who no longer have to worry about paying mortgages, putting kids through school, putting bread on the table, and that's uh, generally older engineers who are retired. Right. Uh, or, and or they people like and they say, this is just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, it is. That's right. Well, let's get back to Chris Bowen's plans. He was boasting this week about $2.7 billion dollars worth of big batteries being built into this new system. That doesn't actually sound like a lot to me. What role do these batteries play? And are they made using cobalt dug up by child slaves in Congo? 
Uh, well, they're certainly made using cobalt, uh, and most of the cobalt comes from the Congo. So, yes, I'd say so. Uh, the batteries are negligible in terms of their contribution to the network uh, and storage. What the batteries are doing at the moment is providing stability to the system. Uh, so when there's a fluctuation, the batteries can quickly discharge uh, more, more quickly than any uh, generator could. Uh, so that's their role at the moment. Uh, the figures to use them for storage are uh, A, they're far too expensive, but B, we don't have the mines to provide the minerals to build the batteries at the moment. So there's no chance that batteries are actually going to do more than play a, a sideshow. And indeed, if you look at the, um, the ISP from AEMO, uh, you find that even in 2050, something like 10% of capacity will be gas-fired power because they know that there won't be storage to cover all the gaps that need to be covered. Well, that's at odds with what Chris Bowen, Bowen is telling us, isn't it? It is. Um, and someone ought to ask Chris Bowen why the ISP has this figure in for uh, gas-fired power stations in 2050, uh, why he's not drawing our attention to it, and how having that percentage of um, electricity being generated by gas is consistent with his net zero. Yeah, exactly. Now, how likely are blackouts in your opinion? I know AEMO was quoted saying, the, the head of AEMO was quoted saying this week that uh, there will be shortfalls of some kind in 2027. Do you think there will be blackouts and when? Look, there'll probably be blackouts before then. Um, they've avoided blackouts in some cases by what they call demand management. And demand management means telling a big user that they'd like them to stop using for a period of time. And they pay them to compensate them for that. Uh, you might have seen that Rio has um, um, uh, completely ridden off its smelter at, at, uh, at Boyne in um, Gladstone. I suspect part of the reason for that is that they don't have any faith in its long-term future because if you're going to find a, a user that can help out with these potential blackouts and make a significant difference, the alumina refineries in Queensland make up about 10% of power demand. Right. So if you're getting close, you ring them up and say, look, guys, we'll pay you. You need to come offline. Uh, you know they can't go offline for more than three hours, otherwise the uh, pots freeze up and uh, you've got to build a whole new refinery. But they're the sort of tricks they've been doing. So we have been having blackouts. They've just been selective to particular users. Oh, so consumers or, or, or the electorate isn't quite aware of, of what's happening in the system? The electorate is not aware at the moment, no. Right. Now, speaking of the electorate, ensuring that energy is reliable and cheap used to be an election winner. But these days, politicians can hide behind the multiple layers of bureaucracy that entangle the industry. We have, for example, the Australian Energy Market Commission, which writes the rules. And these are enforced by the Australian Energy Regulator. And those rules are meant to be adhered by the Australian Energy Market Operator, which in turn keeps an eye on all the companies generating, distributing and selling electricity. This is convenient. This conveniently leaves out elected politicians out of the loop. So who puts their hands up in the events of a blackout and says, well, that was my mistake. I'll either fix this problem or resign. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Um, we've basically got a nationalised system of electricity these days. 
Uh, it's just nationalised in partnership with the private sector. And um, that means that it's someone at a political level who is responsible, uh, but we know that political responsibility is only uh, exacted at election time. And often electors are making decisions on a variety of factors and power prices may not be the one factor they make that decision on. Uh, you also, I think, have a, a problem in that both sides of politics have gone along with this nonsense. The uh, Liberal Party have not been prepared to say, this is a disaster waiting to happen and here are the problems. Uh, they've pretended they went to the last election with a, uh, a net zero by 2050 promise, so they've pretended that it can be done as well. Uh, with some honourable exceptions, you know, for example, uh, our uh, National Party senators from up here like Matt Canavan. Yep. Well, ironically, they call the current system a deregulated market because the private sector is involved, but it's more regulated than ever. And like I said before, and you agree with me, nobody seems, the buck keeps going past, keeps getting passed around in circles. Nobody's responsible anymore, are they, Graham? They're not, and that's the way I suspect our politicians like it to be. Uh, you know, Chris Bowen's driving this, it's his legacy, um, but by the time the really big cracks are apparent, he won't be around. No, no he'll, be, he'll be on his parliamentary pension and, uh, and uh, enjoying Probably the good life. Probably running a super fund, uh, I'd say. <laughs> that's, that's, that's another topic for another day. Probably Gr investing overseas because there'll be no investments worth having in, in Australia. Exactly. Good point. Graham Young, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure, Fred. That's Graham Young, the Executive Director of the Australian Institute for Progress. While Joe Biden struts around Ukraine and Poland, rattling his sabre and reassuring Europeans that Russia is no match militarily for a united NATO, he is blissfully unaware that a much bigger and more consequential war in the Pacific began years ago and that China is winning it. It's a subtle war being fought on terms that are invisible to most people in the West. But the person to whom they are most invisible is doddery old Biden himself, whose family was once up to its neck in corrupt dealings with China and for all we know, still is. This war is, among other things, cunningly cultural. China's infiltration of Western institutions and society is already overwhelming. Hollywood, which once celebrated American triumphalism and values, now instead churns out garbage about gender diversity, environmental destruction and nihilistic amorality, all of which are unsubtly contrary to the United States founding principles while not daring to criticise its true master, the Chinese Communist Party. The National Basketball Association, which has a huge following in China, where coincidentally most of its major sponsors' footwear is made, went into serious damage control in 2019 after one of its managers dared to say in a tweet that the brave Hong Kongers fighting back against China's brutal takeover deserved our support. This week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Chinese companies are, trying, are tying Western corporations up in Western law courts in battles to defend the copyright of their own intellectual property. 
It's a strategy to, to hobble whatever economic or commercial advantage we might still have against the nation that habitually steals ideas from Western innovators. Even the courts have been captured. A survey of corporate bosses in the European Union in 2021 found that there was a, quote, tendency of court rulings to favour Chinese stakeholders, unquote. The same applies here in Australia. Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Director General Mike Burgess said in a speech on Tuesday that ASIO was advised to ease up on certain foreign spies. He didn't mention China, but it's fair to assume he wasn't referring to spooks from, say, Britain or Japan. Quote, Individuals in business, academia and the bureaucracy have told me ASIO should ease up its operational responses to avoid upsetting foreign regimes, unquote. You have to admire Burgess's candour here. Anybody who has dealt with Australian government insiders over the past 20 years or so knows how difficult it is to get any government employee to express even a mild opinion, let alone say overtly that our relations with what is now the region's superpower are being fundamentally compromised. Burgess went on to say, quote, anyone saying these things should reflect on their commitment to Australia's democracy, sovereignty and values because espionage and foreign interference is deliberately calculated to undermine Australia's democracy, sovereignty and values." Unquote. Well, it's a bit late for that. China is undermining those values across our region and our government is simply sitting back and letting it happen, as my next guest will explain in a minute. But that's okay because Foreign Minister Penny Wong is focused on what really matters in the region. In December, she appointed Stephanie Copas Campbell, an expert in international and community development, to the new role of Ambassador for Gender Equality, who will promote gender equity across the region. Because, you know, those dumb sheilas in tropical island villages need a white saviour savior to tell them how bad they've got it. This level of sanctimonious idiocy fits perfectly into China's plan to dominate the Pacific. It sees the West as a culture that is imploding under its own self-indulgent freedoms and self-imposed divisions. China's main ally, Russian President Vladimir Putin, said it succinctly this week. Look at what they've done to their own people. They're destroying family, national identity, they are uh, abusing their children. Uh, you know, even pedophilia is, is uh, announced as a normal thing in the West. And they are, they're recognizing same-sex marriages. That's fine. That they're, they're adults. They've got the right to live their life. And we always were very tolerant about this in Russia. Nobody is trying to enter private lives of people, and we're not going to do this. However, we need to tell them, but look at the scriptures of uh, any uh, religion in the world. Everything is said in there. And one of the things is that uh, family is a union of a man and a woman. 
1999, two Chinese corporals, Kia Liang and Wang Xiangsui, wrote a book that clearly outlines the war China is now waging against the West. Make no mistake, just because no shots have been fired or blood shed doesn't mean the war hasn't already started. Liang and Xiang Sui correctly observed that the West sees war as being determined by military and technological prowess. They acknowledged that for most of history, this has been the dominant and most successful approach to conflict. But not anymore. Their book, Unrestricted Warfare, says that in the future, war will not be confined to the battlefield. That, quote, the boundaries lying between the two worlds of war and non-war, of military and non-military, will be totally destroyed. Unquote. For example, they went on, for example, quote, a single man-made stock market crash, a single computer virus invasion, or a single rumor or scandal that results in a fluctuation in the enemy country's exchange rates or exposes the leaders of an enemy country on the internet, all can be included in the ranks of new concept weapons." Unquote. That was written in 1999. China has since added the COVID virus to that list, probably its most successful salvo in the war so far. By releasing a mostly harmless virus and then setting a brutally harsh example for its response, which was to lock down entire cities and nations for the better part of two years, it tricked the West into the worst self-inflicted economic and social harm we have seen since at least World War II. But if COVID, COVID was deliberate, why wouldn't they simply release an actual lethal virus? which they are probably capable of doing. Well, again, this is a different kind of war. Liang and Xiang Sui say unrestricted warfare is waged using what they call kinder weapons. These weapons, quote, strike at the enemy's nerve center directly without harming other things, giving us numerous new options for achieving victory. The best way to achieve victory is to control, not kill." Unquote. Do we need any more evidence that the Chinese are controlling us already? How far has the CCP penetrated the West? Is it, for example, somehow responsible for the train derailment in Ohio on February 3, which released a mushroom cloud of toxic vinyl chloride into the air and potentially contaminated significant amounts of drinking water? What information did its spy balloon manage to gather while it floated over the United States in late January and early February? And why did Joe Biden wait a week to shoot it down? Is Joe Biden more loyal to the Chinese Communist Party, with whom his son Hunter has had many corrupt dealings, than he is to the people of the United States? How much is Chinese technology, including our mobile phones, spying on us, on us and our governments and financial institutions? Whatever the answers, these are the kind of questions the CCP wants us to ask ourselves because they add to the paranoia of the West. The strategists behind the unrestricted war 
must be laughing at how easy we've made it for them. Now, let's cross to Cleo Pascal, who is currently in Montreal, but in a few hours will be hopping on a plane to Palau in the Western Pacific. Pascal is a prolific writer on the geopolitics of the Pacific region. She's a fellow of seven major think tanks, including the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the Global Counterterrorism Council. She's written for the Washington Examiner, Quillette, The Diplomat, The Economist, The Telegraph in London, the Times and the Australian Financial Review. No observer or commentator travels as widely or as frequently in the Pacific as she does, or has as many contacts on the ground in places throughout the region where China is muscling its way in to take control and probably subjugate local popu populations. I am very pleased to say she joins me now. Cleo, welcome. Thank you very much for that very kind and generous introduction. Cleo, I've just outlined the reasons why I think unrestricted war with China has already begun. But can you give me your interpretation? Has China already embarked on a war with the United States? And if so, how? Yes, yeah, so, uh, and I would broaden it out. The United States might be the primary target because it's the superpower, so it's the biggest target but it's not the only target. It's, this is a battle of systems. So the Chinese Communist Party wants its system to metastasize this, this uh, authoritarian, centrally controlled system, which would like to replicate and create more authoritarian systems that themselves refer back to Beijing for major decisions. So recreating this, that suzerainty type model, whereas the US is the most visible representative of a completely different system of democracy, transparency, accountability, human rights. And you might think that all of that is a little bit passe or there's so many problems. That's all true, but not when you compare it to China. China is a whole different level. So I, I just make it more clear that, you know, that the Chinese are not on their own. They do have friends. They have the Iranians. They have the Russians. They have a, a lot of other lovely people like that. And the Chinese are, are not going to be satisfied with the destruction of America. It, it is a system versus system competition. Yeah, and a, and a philosophy versus a philosophy. I mean, you know, the, the United States represents freedom and uh, the CCP represents something uh, entirely different. But, but as far as unrestricted war goes, what evidence is there that unrestricted war has begun already? So let's take a look at uh, Solomon Islands, if I may, if you don't mind, uh, because it's right off of your coast. And it's it's where uh, we saw um, the, the previous big early clashes of systems. So um, the British were there before World War II, and that was one of the reasons why the Japanese targeted Tulagi and then the rest of Solomon's. And that's also why the U.S. had to liberate Solomons in order to be able to push back and fight back and push the Japanese further, further north. So Solomons is known for its geographic reasons, but also for others, of being a critical component of the defense of the Pacific. Oh, I, just, I just want to jump happened. in there before, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to jump in for my Australian viewers. It's particularly important to us as well, isn't it? Well, it is because it's part of that arc that goes off the coast of Australia that if the, if the Japanese had and if the Chinese do control that arc, then you're interdicted. 
It's the creation of, a, of an island chain of barriers that's off the coast of Australia. It doesn't matter whether your submarines are there or whatever. If you've got those Chinese fishing boats, the maritime militia, the PLA Navy floating around in those waters, it, it, which they are, um, and dropping buoys and doing uh, assessments of depths and salinity, it becomes very difficult to operate. That's why they're doing it. They know that it's important to control it. And we can see how you're talking about unrestricted warfare. One of the clearest case studies in the world is in Solomon's. Solomon's recognized Taiwan until 2019. Then Sogavari, current prime minister, unilaterally switched to China in September 2019. So you can just see what China in a country does from 2019 to now and what it what it's done is created a, a situation where at this very moment, we can go into whatever details you want, but um, the, they have bought off 39 out of the 50 members of parliament in the Solomons. That was enough to amend the constitution in order to postpone elections. So they were supposed to have elections this year, but they're not going to have elections this year. And remember, battle of systems, they hate democracy. They've also managed to get rid of, again, through this unrestricted warfare, in this, in this sense, a uh, uh, lot of bribery and political persuasion. Uh, the premier of the most populous province, Malaita province, Daniel Sudani, who, when the switch happened, stood up for all of these values that we talk about and put out this Alki communique saying, um, we don't want any CCP-linked businesses in Malaita. And let's just, let's just, sorry, I just, sorry to interrupt. I just want to sort of clarify things there. So this is a region in, in the Solomons called Malaita. Did I pronounce that correctly? And um, Suadani, yes, Malaita. So, and Suadani was the elected representative uh, in the national parliament. And he was one of the few, if, the, if not the only... He was so he was so this is a province like a state like an Australian yeah, state yeah and he was the premier he was the, he was the premier, premier of that okay province. right and one of the few one of the few if not the only politician to stand up for democratic principles and object to the Chinese uh, infiltration into politics in the Solomons now you have evidence uh, that I suppose you got through Suadani that um, implicates the Chinese. Well, I don't want you to divulge your sources, but but implicates Chinese uh, the, the CCP in in bribing uh, um, Solomon politicians in supporting China. So the, so essentially, China's influence has been achieved through political corruption in the Solomons, and one of the few people left objecting to that was Suadani, and he's been ousted just this week. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, he's just, I think it was last week. He So he was ousted as premier in a vote of no confidence in which the, the half plus one of his parliament was bought off. Um, there are other leaders in the Solomons who are desperately trying to fight against China, the leader of the opposition, for example, Matthew Wally at the national level. But the, the thing about this is um, there's been no help from anybody, including Australia. All Australia would have to do, a lot of this dirty money is laundered through Australian real estate, Australian banks. All Australia would have to do is its job, which is to look for corrupt money running through the systems. And, and you would 
create a level playing field where people like Sudani could fight for their own country on their own terms and not be up against this uh, juggernaut behemoth of Beijing that's romping through unopposed, including by Australia. Now, is China's or the CCP's objective in the Solomons as dire as we think it might be, like a, you know, a repeat of what Japan tried to do in World War II but failed? So I think that a, a very good and clear analogy is Hong Kong. I think it's going to try to Hong Kongize uh, Solomons. So it takes over the key uh, components of the economy. It uh, restricts any sort of free freedom of expression. It suppresses the population. And any major decisions refer back to Beijing. Well, yeah, and, and, but the, the geopolitical uh, objective, is it to isolate Australia from the United States? Yeah, it's to, so there, there are multiple objectives, all of which are currently being achieved. One is to gain this toehold um, in a place like, so for example, the Pacific Islands talk a lot about how important the legal fisheries are. They want to stop the illegal fisheries. And the U.S. Coast Guard has been working on that. And the foreign fisheries um, headquarters is in Solomons. Recently, the, um, the Solomon Islands government refused entry to, the coast, to a Coast Guard cutter to refuel in the Solomons. That, and still today, U.S. naval ships, in fact, no naval ships except Australia, New Zealand, and one assumes Chinese, ships are allowed into Solomons. So that greatly reduces the capacity of the U.S. to operate in the area. And that's also just happened in Vanuatu. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter was not allowed into port in Vanuatu. The, the calls went unanswered. So you can see at a very practical level the uh, isolation of these countries and the, the cutting off of support from uh, others, for example, the U.S. And again, this Australian administration isn't doing anything. Australia should have put in a major complaint when the U.S. Coast Guard cutter wasn't allowed into Vanuatu. They should have tried to ensure that they were allowed into Solomons. So it's a, a fragmentation of the alliance between Australia and its other partners who are concerned about China, at the same time as signaling to the people within those countries that Australia is not going to stand up to China in their countries. That's a pretty, uh, pretty distressing uh, point you've just made, but it's reflected in what happened, what's happened in Australia just this week. The head of Australia's top intelligence agency, ASIO, Mike Burgess, who's the boss, said this week that people in Australian business, the bureaucracy and academia had pressured him to go easy on certain spies. Now, he didn't name which nation these spies came from, but you don't have to be a an international expert to know he was referring to China. He also said that people who want to compromise on Australia's intelligence are compromising on our sovereignty and democracy. Now, Cleo, how active are Chinese spies in the region and why would anyone want to cut them any slack? So according to the 2017 National Intelligence Law in China, every Chinese company and every Chinese citizen must support the efforts of the Chinese intelligence uh, organizations, and there are many of them, by law. And they, they will be re rewarded if they do, and they will be punished if they don't. So their intelligence operations are, look very, very different than uh, Australia's do, for example. If you're a Chinese businessman operating in Solomons or Vanuatu or Samoa or wherever, and the Chinese state wants something from you, 
you better give it to them or else your family might be punished, your bank account's frozen, you'll, you're no end of trouble. And they've made this kind of, this, this overt and they've just appointed, China has appointed a uh, national government representative to the Pacific Islands, which shows that this is a whole of government uh, effort on the Chinese part to consolidate the region. No, I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, it's way beyond what the U.S. is doing in terms of uh, activity or trying to understand the region. China has half a dozen think tanks that just look at the Pacific Islands. So it's it's not uh, surprising that their intelligence operations are so uh, successful and supported with huge amounts of money. Um, they're they're winning. What can I tell you? Well, well, speaking of that, I mean, you've traveled extensively in the region. You're on your way to Palau now. What's the what's it like on the ground throughout the Pacific? Uh, is there much fear about what China's ha doing or are, do, do they just see all this Chinese money pouring in and think, oh, well, it can't be that bad? So they're like they're like any country like Australia. You'll have some people who say, great, we want the money. And some people who say this is destroying our way of life and we're going to fight. And, they, and you find those people all over. And um, it's, it's quite infuriating when you get people who say, oh, the Pacific Islanders, they're all corrupt. And no, the ones you're dealing with are corrupt. You're not giving a level playing field to the honest ones to actually fight for their country. Sui Dani, for example, he needed the health care treatment uh, outside the country. And the government of Solomon said, you take Chinese money in your province and we'll give you the money to get your health care. And he said, no. He would rather die. He's proven he'd rather die than take Chinese money. And there are people like that all over the Pacific. And what happened to Sudani has sent a chill throughout the region because all those brave men and women who've been standing up to China now feel like they're standing alone, like nobody has their back. And that's been a, a huge warfare, political warfare, unrestricted warfare win for China. Yeah, well, I mean, what happened to Suidani should send chills down down Australian as well. But uh, sadly, this absolutely seismic shift in the geopolitics of the region has gone pretty much unnoticed in Australia. Now, just I just want to switch to the cultural aspect of this unrestricted war. How does China ferment uh, tensions inside Western nations? So it has uh, at least uh, a couple hundred thousand uh, military affiliated people who are dedicated to using uh, social media in particular to um, use mass customized manipulation to create fragmentation in society. This is very widely known. There's a good book uh, on it by a, a retired U.S. Marine um, called Kerry Grishanik. The man's called Kerry Grishanik. Um, and he details it with two case studies, um, Taiwan and uh, Philippines, how uh, Thailand, how how they do it. And it's if you have TikTok on your phone, you're vulnerable. If you're using WeChat, you're vulnerable. You know, they get into your head and they don't care really whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. They just want you to fight each other. They don't care if you like ice cream or don't like ice cream. They just want you to fight each other. And they want you to they want to create the state of entropy in the countries so that they fragment and weaken and become more susceptible to um, influence operations and ultimately to uh, to take over by people like Sogavari, for example, in Solomon's, a strong man who's then backed by China, knowingly or not. Um, and then they 
fall into this state of vassalhood. So yeah. they, they want they want to create they, they want yeah, I mean we've talked about it before, but you know, this Asian hatred thing. I mean I don't know if you want me to talk about that. Yeah, but, please do, yes. So so they you know, this is this has been tracked. Um, you know, there's this whole thing about uh, if you're criticize China, that's going to increase attacks on Asians. Um, that uh, a, a section of that has been tracked back to uh, operations from China to try to create that impression um, in order to shut down criticism of China, to say that you're racist if you criticize China. That is an influence operation that we've seen. And and the U.S. was very sensitive to this under the previous administration. They shut down the consulate in Houston because it was running these kinds of getting the ground level um, inspired to uh, attack each other and ultimately uh, weaken the government and weaken the credibility of the society as a whole. And weaken the culture, exactly. The, um, I mean, we've only made that easy for them ourselves because we've created this thing where the accusation of racism inside a Western liberal democracy is probably the most heinous accusation you can make. And it's bandied about willy nilly. Um, and I think that it obviously, from what you say, the Chinese are using that as a weapon against us. It, it's uh, it's almost suicidal, don't you think? Yeah. So what what the Chinese are very good at doing is identifying what could be real problems and then exaggerating them and giving you the wrong solution. So, yeah, so if you've got a, a problem with racism, you know, and you, 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 under normal circumstances, you might be able to find other ways of dealing with it, but they explode it into, you know, everybody's a complete racist and, and, and horrific. And so the, the correct response is for you to kill each other, you know, or to throw people in jail or to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, so or, or that, riot that, across the United States. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and burn down your own neighborhoods. You know, I mean, it, so it's that, but it's very much that dynamic. Take a real problem, and there, there are real problems. Explode it and bring in intersectionality and then give the wrong solution. Exactly. And it's happening all around us. Cleo Pascal, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Th thank you for covering this topic, especially the Pacific Islands. I'm Australia could really be part of the solution, and uh, now now it's it's not. We well, we need to be for our own survival. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's leading Pacific region geopolitical commentator Cleo Pascal. Well, Sydney is awash with rainbow imagery at the moment for World Pride, the semi-frequent international LGBTQI plus festival that was first held in Rome in 2000. The Sydney event started officially last Friday, but doesn't really kick off until this weekend and ends on March 5. I happen to live near Oxford Street, Paddington, which is where most of the city's gay bars and clubs are. I can't help noticing that the plethora of rainbow flags are not matched by an increase in people on the streets. But the World Pride organisers assure me that that will change this weekend and that many of the main events are sold out. Whatever one's enthusiasm for these things, it is clear that aspects of it have crossed the line of good taste. Here's a photo I took outside Coles in Bondi Junction just last week. 
It's a drag queen image advertising condoms where kids walk past with their parents. Coles, as it happens, is a presenting sponsor and is, quote, building a safe and supportive working environment for all team members, regardless of age, disability, race, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, religion, ethnicity, family responsibilities or cultural background, unquote. Family responsibilities, huh? What about the family responsibilities of parents who don't want their kids exposed to crude ads for condoms? But another group well and truly crossed the line at Wynyard in the city. This mural appeared recently on a billboard. It was apparently commissioned by a group of local retailers. The imagery is bad enough, but adding a furry bear's head, the sort of thing that would catch the eye of a child, was too much. After a brief online storm about it, it was daubed with, bucket, with a bucket of purple paint and a message left on it saying, leave the kids alone. Here, here. I asked the organisers if they had an opinion about this or the advertisements around the city aimed at explicitly sexual activities. I got no reply. The organisers of World Pride might like to tone it down if they don't want to alienate the people of Sydney who are not part of this festival. I don't care if you're gay or straight, and a festival aimed at one type of sexuality seems to me to be celebrating one of the least significant aspects of a person's character. Ironically, that would probably get me accused of homophobia these days. Two tragic phrases unfortunately define the troubled times we live in. Sudden death, which is usually a euphemism for a healthy person killed by an experimental COVID vaccine, and Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, which refers to the power Bill and Hillary Clinton supposedly have to bump off anybody who has incriminating evidence against them. Epstein, you will recall, was the rich, well-connected pedophile whose mansions in New York and Miami and Ireland in the American-controlled part of the Virgin Islands were for decades habituated by some of the richest, most powerful people in the world, including, on many occasions, Bill Clinton. Epstein's friend, Ghislaine Maxwell, paid underage girls, often from poor and broken families, to entertain him and some of his guests. Maxwell is now serving 20 years for her part in the sick operation. Epstein famously died in a New York lockup when the security cameras were mysteriously switched off. His death was officially recorded as suicide. He's not the only former friend of the Clintons to end his own life. Eight other former acquaintances have killed themselves. Actually, make that nine. Mark Middleton was an intermediary between Bill Clinton and Epstein. In July, in June last year, his body was found tied to a tree with a gunshot wound to the chest, but no gun on a property in the Clinton's home state of Arkansas. Nine months after that grisly discovery, the local cops have finally released their report, which concludes suicide was the cause. 
Almost all of these people are connected in one way or another to allegations about Clinton's predilection for extramarital activities. Was Middleton in a position to shed light on that? We'll never know. But you can add Mark Middleton didn't kill himself, whether accurate or not, to the list of tragic catchphrases of our times. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't miss the eloquent Professor David Flint on Save the Nation tomorrow night. And I'll see you again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Good night.